hello and welcome back to another week of the game dev show kaylee hurst here as always with my co-host luke greenaway luke kaylee hey friend how you doing uh you sound I'm, a little subdued i'm subdued subdued i'm i'm subdued but uh here i've got two laptops going one of them has a screensaver going do you think it's weird that screensaver technology graphics haven't changed in 20 years there's like a program that it hasn't really but there is a program on steam called wallpaper engine 3d and it allows you to create your own wallpaper and it's really animated i'd recommend that for Maybe you. I need to do that because, <laughs> yeah, it's still like the same. The square that trippy. used to bounce and become No, a ball. it's not the bouncing square. I'll see if I can find that. It's like the rainbow line that sort of traces through the screen. Anyway, <clears throat> screensaver talk, <laughs> which is what people come here for. Um, <laughs> yeah. They also come here for incredible guests like Mike Rose, founder of No More Robots, who was our guest this week. What did you think? He was great. He did not pull any punches, no. which was kind of fun just to get to sit back and listen to his thoughts. Um, he's, you know, had such an interesting journey through the industry from, you know, writing and reviewing games to working on the PR side of things. And now the publisher side as the founder of No More Robots. He really has an interesting perspective on the industry. What did you think? Yeah, exactly. I loved his transparent didn't give a f- attitude mm-hmm. however i can't say i agree with everything he said because <laughs> a lot of the things he said were um i don't know he just sold it how he saw it which i yeah. always respect yeah should we get into it because <laughs> it's good one. all right <laughs> it's so let's funny. jump in okay. mike rose so mike why don't we start uh chronologically at the beginning if you can give us an idea of where you grew up, um, what you were like growing up, and how you got into games. Well, uh, I'm from Manchester. It's like London too. It's London, but better, because it doesn't have as many people, and you don't want to die when you use the public transport. I don't remember a time when I wasn't playing video games, really, I guess, just from a very early age. I remember getting a Master System, I was well into Sega, so into Sega. I got a mass system, and then I got a Mega Drive, and that was so good. But one of the earliest horrible memories of video games was when I had a Mega Drive, and I had every Sonic, and I had all the games, and then our washing machine broke, so my mum had to sell the Mega Drive and all of the games to pay for a new washing machine. You know, we didn't have much money at the time, so it was a horrible moment, but made me learn to appreciate the things I had. The other main thing that I kind of think set me on this path from an early age was that when I was, I don't know how old, maybe nine or ten, one of my uncles bought me a thing called the Games Factory for Christmas. It was this gigantic white box, and it had a giant 600-page manual in, like, a ring binder. And it was just a thing for making video games on PC. And so I started, you know, nine-year-old me started trying to make video games, and they were all obviously hot garbage. But, you know, in in a way, it really made me kind of appreciate what went into making these things. And so, you know, arguably I had some kind of 
level of understanding of all of these games that I was playing. It made me also want to play a lot more kind of smaller stuff as well, you know? It's not like there were tons of video games out there when I was young, back in the 1930s, but uh, there was enough smaller stuff and kind of bigger stuff that there was a range that I could play. But, you know, like then when I was kind of older teenager and smaller stuff started coming out, stuff like Braid and world of goo and and all that then that really started to make me go oh holy crap there's all of these well strange games out there that i could be playing and that's where it all kind of set off for me career-wise really i started playing everything strange and small that i could find and then i started writing about them what kind yeah. of games did you make with your games factory um, you said they were hot garbage but i want to know more yeah tried to make obviously started trying to make platformers because that's what every single person ever does who tries to make video games you, you just make platformers there was a great series i made called attack of the teachers where it was just a platformer and it was basically just a young boy going through school attacking teachers well no the, no in fairness the teachers were attacking him that's why it was called attack of the teachers but uh, i think he threw pencils at them to kill them and I think there was a jetpack level where he was chasing the headmistress of the school through the skies. There was another game my brother collected Beanie Babies, uh, Blast from the Past there. So we made a Beanie Baby fighting game called the Beanie Baby Basher Bonanza that was a two-player fighting game. And you... <laughs> just all of his, his Beanie Babies murdered each other. That was good as well. No, I didn't know Beanie Babies made it to the UK. I thought those were a, oh North yeah, American. we love Be- yeah we love oh, Beanie Babies. Gosh. I remember being at school and there was a there was a kid at school, Lauren, who she said that her mum was like a Beanie Baby seller or something, and she'd bring like a catalog in, and she'd be like, it was like under the table, like which of these Beanie Babies are you missing? Which ones do you need? I can get them for you. <laughs> <laughs> It was great. I'm not going to name names, but I know someone who, like, a good portion of their retirement investment was them buying Beanie Babies, and they were like, this is me getting ready for the future. The Beanie Baby phase of all of our lives. But yeah, I made a video game about them murdering each other anyway. Just lots of games, lots of games. And And I tried selling them as well, actually. At the age of, I think, 12, I made a game called Space Splat. It was arguably just Space Invaders, but it was heavily... I would have been sued by Nintendo several times over if they caught wind of this game. It was basically, level one was the Mario Brothers, throw pies at them. Oh yeah, you threw custard pies at them, obviously, Space Splat. Another level, there was Link and Zelda. Link was throwing out all of the little medallions that you got in Ocarina of Time or whatever, and trying. It was it was terrible, but... I think I made about a tenner. Um, <laughs> nice. So, you know. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. I still, the uh, Beanie Baby one's great though. I just remember like Primal Rage on the Mega Drive was a big game. And I just imagine like this Beanie Baby game being released alongside it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm trying to imagine like the mechanics of a Beanie Baby body battling because they're so floppy. Oh yeah, there was a lot of spin attacks. Yeah. A lot of kind of <laughs> pressing two buttons together and it would make them flop at each other to be honest i don't really know how i worked out how much damage they would do to each other i'm sure it was extremely primitive 
and probably you could just hammer the the attack button and it just happened. But you know, for ten year old me, it was pretty amazing. And, and you know, as well, it wasn't just me. My my brother, you know, he was even younger. He's five years younger than me, so he was making games with this thing at like the age of six or whatever. So, if someone pitched you the Beanie Baby game today, would you publish it? I mean, if they can get the if they can get the copyright, then let's do it. Okay. You know, <laughs> let's be part of the Beanie let's Baby revitalization. God, yeah, are they coming back? I wish. I wish. <laughs> okay, so take us from 10, 12-year-old Mike making really cool Beanie Baby battle games to where you are today. When I was a teenager, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I know that sounds stupid, but I, I think I think as a teenager is a big concern for a lot of teenagers, like especially when you get sort of 16 to 18. And people start going, ooh, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to university? What are you going to get as a job? And you're like, I don't bloody know. I don't, like, I, I really don't know. I'm just, I'm still a teenager. I would like to just keep playing video games. Please, that would be nice. People just kept telling me, you're really good with computers, so maybe you should do computers. But the thing was, at the time, there wasn't that much you could do. At school, there were no lessons to do with computers. There was IT. IT was learn how to use Microsoft Word. It was so shit. It's it so, so it was bad. so bad. And looking back, I, I actually cannot believe how bad it was that at school you just couldn't learn actual real things like that to, to do with computers. I, I mean, I think now, you know, there's there's a lot more variety, but it's not even like this was the dark ages or something. You know, like everyone was using computers at this point, and yet you still at school couldn't learn deeper ways to, to use computers. But anyway, so I just kept being told, especially my parents as well, you know, you know what parents are like. I just kept being told, do things that are logic, do things that are slightly computers. So I ended up doing maths, maths again, because you can do maths twice in British schools, Latin, nice. and ancient Greek. I bet that Latin and that ancient Greek, sir. So. Oh, I'll tell you what, I have got some pros in my head now that will never leave. I can do whole portions of the Odyssey off the top of my head. (laughs) It's pretty pointless. I I can do the word the in ancient Greek, like 24 declensions of it, for no reason. I love how your your parents gave you this trajectory of logic and computers, and you ended up in Latin and ancient Greek. Yeah. Yeah, I've got so much stupidness in my head. But when I was like, should go to university, I basically ended up doing computer science, which was the closest to computers at uni, I guess. And I started doing that and I hated it so much. I really hated it because the way that they used to teach computer science was so boring. It was just so like... Uh, we're going to make a program today to find prime numbers. Cool, now let's make a program that draws triangles on the screen. Cool, now let's make a program which... Like, I had to make flight booking software. Like, that was one of the things I had to do. Like, how was that meant to inspire me, you know, to to want to learn how to, to code or anything? It was horrible. So what really happened was that I just stopped going to university. I pretended like I was, but I wasn't. I just sat at home and played games. 
This was the period in which I started to find all of these weird games. There were so many like games for me that were revelations, like I was playing World of Goo and, and Super Meat Boy and just finding all of these games and, and knowing that I wanted to be involved in some way, but not really knowing what that way was because, as I discovered, I hated programming. <laughs> So for for whatever purpose, maybe it was me, maybe it was the way it was being taught, for whatever reason I hated programming. And so in the end I think that's partially why I went into writing about games out of uni. Well I was doing some while I was at uni as well, but I think I went into it because I was like, I want to be involved in this industry somehow, but I don't seem to be able to muster up the care to make these things. So I'll just go and judge other people's things instead. And that'll be a great way in. And that is how I ended up writing about video games for nearly a decade. Jeez. Yeah. Off a, off a, a... Off a failed, failed programming course. <laughs> well, you've had a really interesting path through the industry. Because, I mean, like you said, you did spend a good portion of time as a journalist. You also spent a good portion of time on the PR side. Yeah, I wrote about games from about 2007 to 2014. But the thing was, in the last two years I was doing it, I started writing for Gamma Sutra in 2011. That was one of my favourite things I've ever done in my life. I loved working there. The people who I worked with just let me do whatever the heck I wanted. It got to the point, I, you know, after a couple of years of being there, they just become, like, the people I worked with just become so comfortable with the way I work. They just would never check up on what I was doing. You know, and they were just like, he's probably doing something good, so we'll just let him carry on. And it just kind of let me explore so many things. And, and in that time, something I really started to explore was I, became, I started to become fascinated with why certain games were selling and others weren't. You know, like, why is this big game? Why has this game become big? Like, I don't get it. Like, what, what have they done to make this game become big? And then this other game hasn't done as well. Why isn't that as doing as well? And so I started chatting to more and more devs about the things that they were doing. And I just found myself fascinated by just how a lot of this stuff actually worked and I guess the turning point was towards the end of 2014 I don't know if you remember a lovely thing called Gamergate that happened where there was just all of these lovely white men nerds on the internet getting really angry because there's some women in video games and that was not fun I'm saying it as if it really super affected me of course you know it didn't hurt me that much, especially compared to other people. But uh, Gamma Sutra was, like, one of the places where we were really taking a stand against all of these people. And so the, the last few months when I was there in 2014, we got very bogged down. There was things I wanted to do, and I couldn't do them because we had so many strange people on the internet stopping us. And it was quite difficult. And then I was at DevCam. I'd asked to speak at a conference called DevCam. The head of TinyBuild another publisher said they'd been reading a bunch of my things on Gamma Sutra and watching some of my talks and would I be interested in doing PR stuff and I was like yeah alright I'll give that a go I guess I've done this writing thing now and the Gamergate thing was taking its toll a little bit so yeah I'll jump over and that's kind of how that foot in the door happened I guess. I think I've heard some talks you've given more about marketing of games but i'm curious how you think pr in games needs to be approached differently from other forms of digital entertainment i also believe your job description on your linkedin for your time at tiny build was general british guy do i have that right yeah yeah okay i like that job description i mean arguably that hasn't changed 
Yeah, PR in video games is a funny one because there's a lot of PR firms out there, you know, these companies which you give them some money and they'll kind of get stuff out there. But the problem is there's a lot of ways to do it really badly in video games. I'm sure this is the same in other mediums as well. There's lots of obvious things to do, right? Like send out an email to lots of press people and maybe some of them will write about your game and do some tweets that kind of thing you know a lot of those things they probably used to work quite well but a lot of them don't really work that well anymore you know even if you get a bunch of press places to write about your game it's still very unlikely that any of that will make your game sell anything there's a lot of other stuff that needs doing as well on top of that and so i think whenever i see like pr done badly it's usually because a smaller developer is about three months from release and then and they're finally getting towards the end of the game and they go, oh no, I've not done any marketing for the game. Quickly, I'd better throw five grand at a PR firm and they will do all the things. And then this PR firm goes, yes, we will take your money. Thank you very much. Here is an email blast that we've done. <laughs> That's it, we're done. And then strangely, the game then doesn't sell loads of copies. And there's so many points in that equation where it went wrong. The core thing is a, just a general misunderstanding of what it is that actually makes games sell from many sides. We haven't used any PR companies yet. And it's not its not that I think all PR companies are bad or anything. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's some people who are doing really good jobs. It's more that I don't like how disconnected it all is. You know, if a game does badly... It's bad for us, and it looks bad for us, and it hits us as well. If a game does well, the opposite is true. For a PR company, if a game does badly, I mean, it looks bad for them that they PR'd it and it didn't do as well, but yeah, they're going to come out of it fine, aren't they? It's, it's not going to hurt them, really. <laughs> and a PR company as well, they can take, like, dozens of games a year, you know, and go, we're repping this one, this one, this mm. one, this one. And then, and like, they... three of them do well. And then yeah. they can just brush all the others under the carpet and it's fine, we won't talk about those. Or they can blame other things. It wasn't our fault. The game was bad, or whatever. I just f- struggle with that disconnect, I guess. The lack of, um, not right, responsibility, but when things don't go right, like the lack of effect that has on the PR company compared to yeah. obviously the actual devs publishers. I was actually going to ask you because obviously like Kaylee alluded to this but, like your path has been like relatively unique having been a, a journalist and now a creator and obviously we're going to talk about No More Robots soon but has it changed your perspective of video game journalism having now that you're on the receiving end? Yeah very much. If you don't know both sides of a thing then certain ways that things are done can look very strange, you know. And I remember feeling very frustrated at times as a journalist, not understanding why certain companies were doing certain things. And now that I'm on this side, I can see. A lot of the time as well, though, I do find myself frustrated with journalism, a lot of video game journalism, because I know that they could be doing better. You know, Mm. I've been on that side and I was on that side for a long time. And I see some of the stuff that, especially some of the bigger sites put out, where I just feel like, ugh, you could have researched that better, or should have, mm. could have actually put some thought into that. I mean, it's the, the age-old problem with video game journalism is that well-thought-out video game journalism doesn't make money, whereas 
good old listicles and yeah. quickly get some cyberpunk news out over and over again whenever the cyberpunk twitter account takes a breath mm. do a do an article you know i appreciate that's all the stuff that people are clicking and so that's the stuff making money and so you can i could you can be like fair enough but my thing was always when i was at gamasutra what they always told me was I remember actually worked with someone called Frank Capaldi for a short time there, and something he said to me always stuck with me. I remember I was moaning one day about oh this fucking wherever, like I don't know where it was, Kotaku or something. They've posted this garbage again, and uh, he said to me, "Look, you know, you gotta post the garbage so that then you're allowed to post the good stuff." I, I you know, and so it would be like every day I would spend my time like doing half a dozen news posts or whatever about stuff that I didn't care about so that then I got to spend the other half of the day writing the really in-depth thing about how pay-to-win mechanics and in-app purchases are hot garbage. And obviously, you know, less people are going to read that, but it was more important to me and it was something that could actually make an impact. And I think maybe that's what I struggle with. I think maybe there's not enough places realizing that, yes, they could write all of these things and they're all going to get big hits, but then do the other stuff as well. Yeah, the other stuff, the the in-depth stuff and the investigative stuff, it's going to get less hits, fine, but it's good to do. (laughs) You know what? It needs to be done. Um, Do you know what? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I know I talk about this later because I know I've got a question for it and it talks about the actual fundamental contradiction that is you can't have a website that talks about video games and does video game reviews, but at the same time, that same website is paid to advertise the video games they're reviewing. There's a conflict of interest there for the reader more than anybody else. And even if those lines are never crossed, it's still fundamentally... Like, I've worked at Haymarket, which mm. is obviously a large private media company in the UK, and my partner works for a very large media company now, and she has done for years. And there is definitely, behind the scenes, a lot of conversations that happen between commercial teams yep. and editorial, where commercial teams want to create these partnerships with these big companies, and editorial who actually want to write stories, which often involve these big companies negatively. And fundamentally, that's the flaw with media. But I'll ask that question later because I, <laughs> I, I do want us to talk about No More Robots, but before we do... No, I I, do, you know, do you know what's the, the other thing that's been interesting, especially since I moved out of journalism, is when I was writing about games, it was always like if there was even a whiff of, you know, oh, this company's being paid by the thing or whatever, it would be a massive thing. Kotaku mm. are, are being paid by this company and all this kind of stuff. Fast forward to 2020, how many bloody YouTubers and influencers now just straight up just, you know, a game gets announced, like Apex Legends gets announced, and on the day, every single YouTuber is obviously being paid thousands of dollars. Most of them aren't even saying they are. Most of them, you know, they do the little hashtag ad now in tweets and all that garbage. But but it's like most of them are not telling their audiences even that they're being paid by these companies. And mm. are just, just straight up going out there and doing this. And, and it just makes me laugh so much because we used to have to tiptoe so much years ago just to make sure. There was, I remember those people who like ended up getting in trouble and fired and stuff like this from, you know, from their writing jobs for 
situations where they'd taken a, a gift from a publisher or something and then and not disclosed it. Those bloody YouTubers doing it every day. People I like follow as well. YouTubers I like, I, I kind of like. I'm just seeing them do this stuff, and it's it's quite depressing, really. Things like cyberpunk, they obviously get the views, right, and the clicks. And it is horrible if you work in the industry and you play games a lot and you read about the industry a lot because you know that that cyberpunk news is generally for people who play the big franchises they might not be indie game players and i'm not generalizing it just is the way you know you've got your fifa and god players who may buy one or two other big triple a titles a year i think this leads to the fact that there's like two, almost two very different worlds when it comes to games you have those within the industry you play and identify and understand the importance of the medium within modern culture then you have the media platforms and people who haven't attempted to understand games. And I'm not saying that's people who play games necessarily, like the AAA titles, but the critics basically who don't play games, haven't attempted to understand the industry or its importance in modern culture. And yet they're extremely critical of it still. Yeah, absolutely spot on. You know, I, I've got a friend who is planning to buy a PlayStation 5 so that he could play Cyberpunk. And then afterwards, he's going to sell the PlayStation 5 again. And he, he bought a Switch so he could play Zelda, and then he sold the Switch immediately afterwards. And he's not uncommon, you know, arguably the vast majority of people maybe aren't as extreme as that, but do just play FIFA, COD, Assassin's Creed, or something like that. And they're the only, like, you know, they'll get four or five games a year. But I would like to argue that every single person who is a critic of video games and is writing about video games should be in the first camp that you mentioned should be someone who is imagine if i was a, a music journalist and all i did was listen to radio one <laughs> do you know what i mean like if I, all i did was listen to pop culture and that's all i did and i didn't listen to any other genres yeah and i just didn't bother and then whenever some rap came on or something i was like oh what the, the heck is this like i'm not i'm not listening to this like it it, it doesn't make any sense that someone who writes about games wouldn't... But that's that point with the PR agencies. It seems agents. crazy to me. You know, like what you said about the PR agencies. I know this isn't... I know you have dedicated PR agencies for games now because obviously because of its growth. I still don't understand why, even though it's got a lot better, why as a creative medium, considering its size, considering it's bigger than film and game combined, why there is still this attitude and perspective that games can be a negative thing in culture, like games causes gun crime, like games... You know, like when I'm talking about critics, I mean, like critics from outside, I guess, the games industry itself. It's just, it's an interesting challenge. I was going to ask you, like, why is it taking so long to change that perception? Well, it's because they're viewed as childish. Mm. And I will say, I don't think that any of us do much to drive away from that, you know? As an industry, we are incredibly immature. <laughs> just the games we make like like the vast majority of big games mm. are go murder someone you know like that's just that's what the vast majority of games are we we like to murder people for some reason mm. that's what most triple a games are whereas like in movie yeah there's a good portion of movies which are obviously that as well but they have other genres you know what i mean yeah. like they they dabble in a lot of other different things as well we I say we, really, I'm putting this on more AAA publishers now. AAA publishers do nothing to stop their audiences being rabid, horrible communities of people who 
treat everybody in a horrible way. You know, we've seen it when these new consoles have been announced and so and you know, we've seen it with Cyberpunk coming like coming out soon and and every time there's a big game, you go in the the comment sections and it's it's never just horrible, it's really horrible, you know? It's really really nasty and and again, I'm sure this is the same in other industries. I'm sure the movie industry has horrible comments as well. But I feel like we are just an extra step. I feel like video game people who are into video games in general just act so much more immature and so then like someone who doesn't understand video games and maybe thinks to themselves i'm going to come in and try and learn about them now and then they see this stuff and they see you know they try to they're like oh let me see what interesting video games are it's another call of duty look at those white dudes murdering those other white dudes just from an outside perspective looks not like a thing that anybody who is not into video games would like to get into. I guess I get that from you saying that. I think when you look at film, I look at big films, big budgets. I don't actually watch many indie films. So when I see a film, I have an expectation that it's going to be a certain way. Although I wouldn't be toxic in my comments, but then I think that's a problem but, with modern but, culture. But like, but like, let's say, let's say you weren't into TV. The pandemic's hit, you think, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to get Netflix and Amazon Prime, I'm going to get into TV. There's so much, do you like comedy? Do you like horror? Do you like this? Do you like, like, there's so many different, so different. You could find the exact things you like, but if you were trying to get into video games right now, and you didn't know anything about video games, you'd only see the AAA stuff. You go on GameStop or whatever, you'd see all the AAA stuff. It's all the same. It all looks the same. Every cover of every game is some burly dude stood there over a corpse, and it's got a name like Doom, or it's... Do you know what I mean? Like, it's all all just horrible. (laughs) And so, and you know, every now and again you get a spark of niceness. But even when there's, like, an interesting-looking game, uh, something like Horizon or something like that, where it's like, whoa, there's not a burly dude on the cover of this. She's still just murdering people. She's still just going around murdering people. We just, we've got an obsession with that. There's not really a, you know, it's not really a solution to this. It's not like anyone's going to stop making games about murdering people. But I think to answer your very original question, I think that's a big reason why. <laughs> Thank you. you know, <laughs> we're just so, we're just so, we're all just so childish. That's the problem. (laughs) Well, I'm assuming that maybe one thing you have tried to do in founding No More Robots is change what types of games get to market. Uh, Maybe I'm going to eat my words now when I think of the games and and whether they've got violence in them or not. Uh, (laughs) Let's see, I've got non-violent, non-violent. I think I have one violent game. I've got a card game as well that's got enacted violence where the cards kill each other. So that's arguably violence as well. That's still less than a third of our games. But I will say I didn't do that on purpose. You know, I didn't, I wasn't like, must find games with no violence in them. It's just, that's what interests me. You know, when I, when I find games, there's games that I've seen come out this week. That, that, like the two games that have come out this week, which have jumped out the most at me. There's a game called Haven, which just came out yesterday, two days ago, I think, which looks like some kind of sci-fi adventure where you're a, a couple who are mm, exploring space or something like that. Yeah. yeah, that looks so good. And then a game called Fogs, which looks like some kind of acid trip with dogs in it. <laughs> Sounds and, great. And, and for me, that's like, I don't know, play them. <laughs> but but that's not the average person. Right? The average person will see those and go, what is this? I am not looking at these. I am not going to touch these. You know, for us, 
where we have seen this the most, the breakout for us, you know, we've got this game, Descenders Downhill Mountain Biking game. That has gone semi-mainstream for us. You know, that's it's no FIFA or NHL, don't get me wrong, but it's selling tens of thousands of units every month at this point. And the big reason why that's happening is because, arguably, to anybody, they can look at a mountain bike game and go... Yeah, I might try that. I was saying about, you know, people who have maybe not played video games, what are they going to try and come in and play? Everyone knows how to ride a bike. Everyone can understand what this game is going to be. It's going to be a bike, and you're going to press a button to go forwards, buttons to go left and right, and you're going to go down a hill, and you're going to get to the end. I'd always kind of hoped that that was going to be a big reason why Descenders might sell. But it's really come to fruition now. Especially since we put it on Xbox Game Pass and we got so many more eyeballs on it. We get stories on a daily basis now. We get stories of parents exploring video games with their kids, with their their young children. And both these generations are able to understand mountain bikes going down a hill. And... Just honestly, every day I get videos, I get tweets, everything from parents with kids who are playing this game. And it's, I think, one of the core reasons why the game is exploding for us so much. Arguably an argument against needing violence, but uh, possibly, you know, just a singular example as well. So It's sad, I think, because I think games could be so much more, but I don't think anything I am doing is going to no, really make that, make that change. You It'll know? get there. Maybe. So we touched on it, but tell us about founding No More Robots. Yeah, that was in 2017. I, at that point, had worked at a couple of different publishers. I knew what I liked about what they did and what I didn't like about what they did. I'd also become obsessed with watching other publishers as well. Especially in the UK, we've got so many of them. So many massive ones as well. We've got Team 17, we've got Curve Digital, and we've just got lots of big indie publishers and again, I became like fascinated by why are they doing the things they're doing? Why are they doing this with this game? Why are they selling this game at such a low price? It seems ludicrous to me. And really, No More Robots was born out of frustration, <laughs> if anything, that I just felt like everyone was doing it wrong. Uh, so I was going to show them all how to do it because I'm a, you know, e- egotistical maniac somewhat. That's why it's called No More Robots. It was born out of that frustration of, if you're working with us, you're working with real people. Because I was hearing stories over and over and over again. I'd go hang out with game developers and they're always talking about, well, I published my game with this publisher. Never saw any money. Didn't really hear from them much. Felt like I was being churned through a machine. It was quite a arguably ballsy name. <laughs> yeah. So it would just be like, I'm going to fix video games. <laughs> But we've done all right in the end, so that's like that for that. <laughs> yeah, like the spirit of indie of like, hey, I'm seeing this in the industry and it, it just doesn't feel right for me. So I'm going to try and do my own thing and do it differently is something that I really love. And you can frame it as egotistical if you want. But to me, it's just like, a, I don't want to participate in a broken system. So I'm going to do it my own way, which is a bit more helpful yeah. I, think. I like the egotistical yeah. approach personally it's more chaotic yeah. evil like Maybe. well well Maybe. i'll tell you what though you know i do i do joke but i actually do think that that kind of approach is actually necessary sometimes you know you need someone to just kind of go i'm gonna be the one who does this and 
let's do it and but you know and, and maybe you don't get enough people who do that to be honest mm. um, oh it's true because people are scared right you want it's because it's money time like you obviously know like you've done it right but I'm just thinking like I don't even think it's the money and time thing I think it's the looking stupid thing obviously it's definitely the money and time thing for some people but I think I think a lot of people don't just go for it because they're worried about looking like a mm. bell at the end of it do you know what I mean I like that. looking like an idiot it's bold um, isn't it to say no more because your video game slogan is the video game label run by real people <laughs> yeah <laughs> You're like, if you didn't yeah. get it with the no more robots... Again, just, just a little cheeky... <laughs> just a little cheeky dick. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, really trying to hammer it yeah. home. Like. <laughs> yeah. I remember as well, the day that it was announced, I'd done an interview with GameIndustry.biz and I'd done this big rambling interview with them. And then the article came out of the announcement. I can't remember the exact quote, but the, the headline was, developers just want a publisher to work with who actually gives a shit about them. Mm. And, uh, and, I, and I feel like... That was... I feel like there will have been a lot of people who read that went, screw that guy. <laughs> like, just, like, it probably made them quite angry. I like that you're like this, though. Do you know what's interesting is we've had a few CEOs from indie publishers on. I say CEOs, co-founders, etc. Yeah. And they do have that. They are trying to turn it around for the indie. Yeah. And I guess, and I don't want this to be too assumptive, but like as a publisher, I suppose your USP is using data to identify which titles will sell well and then using said data to develop success for the devs and titles you sign. How does that compare to other indie publishers and what ratio of titles revenue success is driven by the publisher, so you, or the actual developer in the game? The core difference, I think, between what I try to do compared to others is that I barely sign anything and try to make every single thing do as well as each other. Whereas, arguably, and I don't think I don't think other indie publishers would agree with this, but it's true. Uh, arguably, uh, a lot of the other indie publishers sign a ton of stuff, and they work out we just need quarter of these to do well, and if quarter of these do well for us, then we are we are solid, we are golden. And I hate that so much because that's goes against everything that you're spouting on the internet you know, like oh we we care about all of our developers well do you though because you've just signed 15 games for next year how are you going to care for every single one of those mm. games how i love um, you physically can't i love how your profile online says you're loud and you are so like you're just like yeah i'm just gonna say how it is your LinkedIn descriptions were the best I've ever seen. Because sometimes those are like overblown statements, but you're like, no, I'm going to follow it through. Like, Yeah, yeah. General British guy, and the one right now is what? It is something yeah. about being loud. Yeah, I am. When I was at school, it was, the, it was the number one thing. My teacher, Mrs. Graham, used to have a go at me all the time saying that people in the town over would be able to hear me. And I've just never strayed from that. Your concept, though, of do less, just yeah. do it better mm. is kind of nice. I, I just don't get it. I don't get it how these... We've got four games coming out next year. We normally do two a year. And we've got four coming out next year. That, for me, is like... It, you know, I'm, I'm like thinking to myself, am I going to need to like hire an extra person so that we could definitely be on top of all of this? So to look at another team that are doing four times, five times as many games as that, they can't. And, you know, and, and because of that, it does make me feel icky about what certain other people are doing 
because you know it's the audacity of of like putting on their website and everything we care about developers and all this kind of stuff and knowing for a fact that they have meetings where they're like well this one's not going to do very well so let's not put too much effort into this one i don't just think that happens i know that happens because i've seen it happen you know i've literally been in those conversations where someone has said that to me said to me let's not put as much effort on that one oh, as these other ones. that makes me sad inside you know, you're breaking the illusion <laughs> It's like finding out Luke yeah. Skywalker was just, you know, a terrorist and there was no motive behind his uh, crusade against the uh, big empire. I was going to, um, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either talk about how you use data and no more robots, right? And how that helps you, your devs and your titles you sign be more successful. Or you can talk about what makes an indie successful. I'm going to try to answer the second one because it's more difficult. Being successful in video games is as quickly as possible learning what does not work. And I say that because I think the vast majority of people do it the wrong way. How often do you hear that someone has decided they're going to learn to make games and the first thing they do is decide they're going to make a four-year RPG, you know? So many developers I've talked to have like got two or three years in and then they're like, well, now I've got to go back and change all of the art because I hate it all. I've learned how to do this thing better now, so I'm going to have to go back and change all of this. And then all of a sudden it's six years and they've not released the game and and, and they don't want to work in video games anymore. Or they release it and it sells nothing because they don't know how to sell games because they've not been learning and this weird game they've made is some weird six-year amalgamation of all different things they've learned to be successful blanket statement to be successful in video games you have got to try to learn as quickly as you can what is actually working and what isn't the main thing that i always tell people who are trying to make a game and make a living out of it is start making lots of small things really fast and actually put them out and learn everything you know just like, if right now I was trying to get into video games and I was going to try and make a game, I would set myself the challenge of making a game in four months. Just a small, it doesn't have to be some crazy epic, you can make your crazy epic game in two or three years time, you know. I would try to make something in four to six months right now, where all I was going to try to do was break even. I was going to try to make back the time that I'd spent on it, and... I would try to learn as much as I could. And in that time, I would learn so much. I would learn how I put my games on all these different platforms. I would learn the weird intricacies. I would make so many mistakes. I would make mistakes everywhere. I would mess my Steam page up. I would forget to put a launch discount on it. I would have no idea. I would launch it and then go, oh, I forgot to tell anybody about this. And then it would sell nothing. So you gave this talk at GDC 2018, and my favorite part was your word cloud. I love a good word cloud. You executed it well. So in the talk, you talked about marketing and marketing on a zero budget. You talked about monetization of your games and how actually having a higher initial selling price can be a huge advantage sometimes. I guess I'm just curious how things, it was such an insightful talk, and I'm curious how things have changed in the past now two and a half years since you gave that talk. Yeah, so since I gave that talk, arguably video games have 
started selling worse. This year's been a weird one for it because a lot of people have been back at home. So in certain places, you know, there's kind of been an increase. But in general, since then, there has been a, a decline. A, a big part of that, I think, is that we are teaching more and more and more people to not pay money for video games in general, <laughs> you know. There's so many games now that I play mm. games with my with my kid, right? And for him, he doesn't understand. Like, every game he plays just has weird monetization in it that he just has to click the cross on over and over again, you know. He, he plays... Uh, even in Minecraft, there's, like, all weird stuff you can buy that no one seems to understand. And he plays Roblox, and every time he's trying to do something in that, he's trying to make him buy something. Or he plays something on an iPad... And that's constantly giving him advert. He's, like, learned now how to deal with adverts, which just feels so grim to me, you know, that, that children are having to do this. But I think because of that, we get constantly asked over and over again, we'll get messages, is Descenders free? Why is it not free? Where can I get it for free? Like, just over and over again, <laughs> people want this game for free. Now, having said that, there are still plenty of people who will pay money for games. Plenty of the stuff that I talked about in 2018 still very much works. I don't know how it's going to look in a year or two. Because especially with this whole push where so many games are free now. And especially with like subscription services as well. With Game Pass and Stadia Pro. And I think Amazon's got one called Luna. Uh, I want to say. There's loads of them, you know. PlayStation are probably going to do one at some point, aren't they? They'd be crazy not to. If we have Netflixed the industry in a few years' time, I don't know how I'm going to sell video games anymore. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to work. Yeah. Uh, so it's probably going to be quite an interesting few years. It's saturation. Yeah. I think it's a culmination of like several things, right? Like You've got games as a service becoming a primary business model for AAA because they just want to keep you in this ecosystem. You've got a wealth of indie titles constantly being coming out because it's easier to make games and that's more accessible than ever was and then you've got your first party platforms who are like microsoft game pass is close to netflix now in terms of monetization model and if you look at those three ecosystems they are gonna naturally cannibalize one another because your resource your metric is people's time players and it's not an infinite resource no, and it's, and it's tricky, you know, with Descenders especially, we've just been putting out multiple updates now. Part of the reason for that is because we get asked all the time, when's a new update? When's an update? People get angry, you know, if you've put a game out and there's not updates for it, because that's what Fortnite has taught them. We put out a game, Yes Your Grace, earlier this year, just a straight-up, narrative-driven, sort of six-to-seven-hour story, and... Genuinely, in the last few months, we've had multiple messages from people leaving like comments on the Steam forums or reviews and all this kind of stuff, negative reviews saying, well, this game came out eight months ago and it hasn't had a single update since then. How dare they? How dare they take my money and then provide me with no updates? It was complete already. We sold you a full game. At no point did we say there was going to be updates. It wouldn't make any sense for us to do updates. What do you want us to do? Just, like, keep adding little bits of, of story off the story and make you play the game through multiple times. AAA has taught the average player that games should get free updates all the time now. 
and that is both a blessing and a curse in a way. It's been good for Descenders because Descenders is the kind of game that can get updates, you know. It's not hard to just add more places to ride a bike. So it's worked quite well for that. But most of our games are narrative-driven games, you know, that last a specific amount of time and then you get out. We're not providing updates for those because we gave you a full game in the first place. But it's hard to explain that to the average player. They're just angry and they just want free stuff. It's incredible how that's changed, right? Because it was literally only a couple of years ago, maybe a bit longer, but Games as a Service was like kind of really starting to kick off. And you had like these two-year life cycles with developer plans and people were fuming about the fact that you would have a game, everything would be on the disc, and yet you'd be paying like seven quid for like two characters in a DLC package. And you'd be like, why haven't we got complete games? And it's interesting that you're now getting the response that it's like, what yeah. do you mean the game's complete? I know. Like, it's where so funny, isn't it? Where are my two characters? How many games come out recently? Where, like, you know, I've not played the new Call of Duty, but like, and, and Warzone and all them. But as far as I understand, people go mad for paying for stuff for it every month. There's a battle pass. There's cosmetics. They bloody love it and they cannot get enough and they just want to churn their money into this game. And it's like you say, literally like two years ago, wasn't like the most downvoted post on Reddit or something like that. Someone from EA defending that Star Wars Battlefront had DLC characters in it. And that's now like one of the most, I think it's the most downrated post on Reddit. Two years later and there's like, that's basically what Call of Duty is now. And it's so funny how... how And Jeez. again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The whole sort of immaturity of the video game community in general. Just how quickly they're led. We're just so... Such on a cycle of getting angry about things. And then two or three years later, busting over. People were so angry about Game Pass when it started appearing. And now, busting over. The console say they're going to put out a pro version of the console, and people are like, I'm, "Well, I'm not, I'm not happy about my console." Now it's best thing ever. Oh, so clever that they put out these new versions of the consoles, and it just happens all of the time. In-app purchases, people bloody love in-app purchases now. God, uh, you're monetizing yeah. your games incorrectly. I think <laughs> it's so you crazy. But uh, yeah, you've got to just. God. Okay, well, this brings us on to our last question. It's quite, I think it's quite apt because we're talking about people quite <laughs> yeah. a lot, players in particular. So, I obviously, obviously used to do a lot of stalking, and I saw that back in October on your Twitter, you were bemoaning a negative Steam review, which was unhappy that Descenders didn't have VR. Now, personally, I think you were right to obviously be like, what the f is this shit? Because obviously, the game isn't a VR game. <laughs> now, I have OCD, right? When it comes to like reviews, I'm so bad and it infuriates my girlfriend because I'm like, God, I have to read the user reviews before we go to every (laughs) restaurant. That's good. I think a lot of this came from the fact that I went to Bali and I got like food poisoning from a place that I didn't read the reviews on. Anyway. Luke, did you know that one of my secret hobbies is Google reviews? I go and Google review every place I've ever been and I write Google reviews that only I think would be interesting or funny. I spend a lot of time doing this. I you love, actually write the reviews. Yeah, I love I love giving reviews. Do you? I've never written a review in my life, but I will I love read everyone's them. reviews. We're, that's why we're a perfect match. I will review stuff and then <laughs> and you I'll read, read my reviews. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? COVID has really hit my ability to give Google reviews because I'm not going anywhere. So you've only been uh, able to Google review the places in your I miss it terribly. In, in your vicinity, hundred meters from. <laughs> I've tried reviewing the sidewalk outside my house before, and no one 
No, I'm really? not screwed You should retrospectively review everything you've bought for your house, regardless go, of age. I go back and read my Google reviews. They're almost like a scrapbook for me of like places I've been. I literally write like an inside joke with myself about what I experienced at that place. We'll, we'll delve deeper into this offline, Katie. We will, we will. <laughs> So, so there's two of us with OCD on this podcast regarding reviews. But basically, I will read reviews from users. As long as they've played the game for a certain amount of time, like Steam, for example, I'll use the fields to make sure they've played for a certain amount of time, etc. And also, like I mentioned earlier, I think there's a, you know, with mainstream media outlets, and I'm not saying this is true by any means, but I have that concern that you have big website, game websites who both advertise games and generate a lot of revenue through that. But it's a primary revenue source, but then they also write reviews of those games. So I think it's a bit, could be biased. Anyway, with what that person wrote about Descenders and the VR, <laughs> the VR thing, which was ridiculous, what do you think about the current review approach? Because it's become like this mass democracy. These open platforms like Metacritic, Steam, etc., like Reddit, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing for games? And in particular for indie games, right? Because indie games, they can live and die by reviews. It's uh, yeah. it's tricky because I think in general, it's good to have these more open systems. But I think a little bit of work needs to be done on them in general. I do it as well. You know, when I'm going to buy a game, I'll kind of look at the user reviews because a lot of the time it is usually the the best way to actually genuinely work out, you know, a, a good opinion of a game. But an issue that I find, especially, you know, since I've been selling games on Steam, is that a lot of users will use things like Steam reviews in the way that they're not really meant to be used, you know? Pushing their, like, personal beliefs or... We literally had reviews on Yesterday Grace earlier this year where, minor spoiler, but you can kind of help along a relationship in the game, a gay relationship in the game. And so we got multiple negative reviews on the game from people being homophobic. And the thing is, then I go to report these reviews and nothing happens. <laughs> They're still there. And then as well, you get like, if you go and look through the, the reviews of Descenders on Xbox right now, you'll just find loads of reviews from people saying, don't like biking. And that's the review they've written. <laughs> And obviously, the problem there is, what's the point of that? You know? What's the point of it? The, the problem is, there's a lot of people who don't understand what the point of reviews is. I guess is what I'm driving at. They don't understand that the whole point that anyone is writing reviews is that they want to know if the game is good or not. No one wants to know if you're homophobic. No one wants to know if you like to ride a bike. No one wants to know that, you know, you, you thought that this pixel art indie game didn't have as good visuals as The Last of Us 2. There's so many kind of reasons why reviews end up being really annoying. And, and a lot of the time as well, you'll get, I've seen people call them hostage reviews, where like someone wants a change making, a very specific change making to a game, and they're not going to be happy otherwise. So they write a negative review saying, I want this putting in the game, and then they get a bunch of other people to upvote it, so it appears in a really prominent place. And then the developer then feels forced to then go and, like, change their game in a specific way. You know, you kind of saw it with that VR one, you know, with the guy going, this game doesn't have VR. Like, we never said it was a VR game, mate. You know, it's, that's not the purpose of reviews. What you've done here is not useful. I've got an idea yeah. for this, though. All, all I was going to say, all I was going to say is I, I think that 
curation needs to happen. I think there needs to be more. If you're going, it's like a, it's like I always say to video game critic websites or journalist websites or whatever. If you're going to have a comment section, you got to have someone who's looking after the comment section. You can't just drop a comment section and walk away like it's an explosion and just let all of these hateful people take over. You got to moderate it. Otherwise, you know, you get the messes that you get in the comments on a lot of websites. It's the same with review places. You can't just like let people write reviews and then just have nobody who is cleaning them up. There should be someone who is jumping on and removing these horrible reviews that clearly shouldn't be there. So I've got I've got an idea for this and uh, for Steam, like Gabe, if you're listening, please. I think to write a review you need to a have played the game for like a minimum of say five six hours or for an indie maybe like say three or four but obviously people could leave their game on you also have to have achieved a certain number of achievements if the game has achievements now that isn't going to rectify the problem for all games but do you find and i bet there's a statistic out there i would say about 50 percent of the reviews which are negative are by people who have played the game for less than a couple of hours and they log on and they're like well yeah this game shit this is the this is the other issue so a big issue that happened it wasn't recent but it's definitely hit recent times they made the change of course where you can get refunds on steam and you can get them if you've played up to two hours and now a huge portion of players will buy games with the intent to use the first two hours as a demo and re- and refund them. We've got crazy refund numbers now. You know, like our games, our refund rates go from between five percent to twenty five percent. But the problem is, those people can review the game. So many reviews, so many negative reviews. If you go on like Descenders and look for the negative, just do it by filter by negative reviews. The vast majority of them, it'll say like one point seven hours of playtime, and they've purposely waited about an hour and a half. They've literally straight up sat there. They've got a clock on the like next. They've got a little timer next to themselves or something. And they've gone right. I'm going to give this an hour and a half. And if I don't like it in an hour and a half, I'm getting rid and I'm putting a negative review on. And that is not useful because a lot of game descenders. You can't understand descenders at an hour and a half. You just can't. So many of our players, like we've had them after like an hour and a half, say like, oh, I don't completely get it. And then after like 20 hours, they're like, I can't believe I nearly didn't carry on playing this game. It's amazing. You know, some games just take time to grow on you and and to really kind of get into them. Not every game can be just a snappy half an hour in. This is amazing. So that system, unfortunately, has created a situation where a lot of people do do that. They use the two hour slot to find out whether they like a game or not. And it's led to a lot of negativity. One of our prior guests, I think it was Tyler Sigmund from Red Hook, right, Luke? Talked about this like three tweet arc that they see where it's like the first tweet is like, holy shit, I love this, this is incredible. And then the second one is like, this is such garbage. I'm never coming back. And then the third one is like, so glad I came back. Like there is this sort of arc of affinity. And if you don't push past that second tweet, you just end with the, this game is garbage. I can't believe I bought it. I've had that loads of times, you know, that some of my favorite games, I remember playing Fallout 3 and being like, I don't get this. It's so brown. And I I just don't understand it. It's kind of boring. And then like 200 hours later being like, this is amazing. I can't believe, like, I can't believe I like started to give up on this game. So many of the best experiences are like that. I think if like Spelunky had come out when you could refund, so many more people would have refunded Spelunky. 
Because, like, an hour and a half of Spelunky would just make you want to kill yourself. You know, like, it would just be like, ah, I can't get past the first world. But, like, you then put more and more hours in, you're like, oh my god, this is the greatest game ever. And having that little window is definitely making a lot of people treat the refund system and reviews in a way that is just shouldn't be used, basically. You, you shouldn't be able to leave a negative review if you've just refunded the game after an hour and a half, because you've arguably not played the game. You just haven't. I think, Mike, we should thank you for being an incredible guest, for being just a general British loud guy for us. You're welcome. Dude, oh, thank you for visionary. having me. Yeah, thanks, mate. Honestly, it's been great. Uh, you've killed a lot of dreams. Um, yeah. <laughs> encouraged others. Killed encouraged some dreams. Encouraged yeah, others. You need a bit of transparency. None of, it, none of it's true, what I've said. I just do it to just clear the path for myself. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Walk over thanks, the body. Mike. <laughs> Cheers, Mike. Perfect. All right. Another week in the books of The Game Dev Show. Thank you to Mike Rose for being our guest. Thank you, Luke for being my co-host did you have a favorite part i think i already asked you that yeah i didn't think i gave you an answer i think okay you kind of did no i just said what mike's like i think the fact that i loved hearing his take on so many things because he was articulate he was to the point and he was very good at just answering just saying look this is how i see it so points of those would be his views on indie publishing and the saturation of video games in general and then i think also his very well his relatively unique path from critic to creator and i think it's very interesting to hear that he openly admits that that's changed his perception on journalism the games industry and actually the the flaws that we discussed with user generated reviews and how unfortunately devs can live and die by them um god yeah yeah I think it is important to say this episode that all of the views and thoughts and opinions expressed on the episode are solely Mike Rose's. <laughs> are just Mike Rose's. They may or may not reflect the company he works for. They may or may not reflect the companies we work for. But uh, for legal purposes, they are only Mike's. Um, <laughs> no, you're such a good guest. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, if you have a good guest, ptw.com slash the game dev show or game dev show at ptw.com. Yeah. Yeah. GG, my friend. GG, friend. Bye. Game over.